invite you to take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of John, if you will. John chapter 12, you should find it on page 898 in the Pew's Pew Bibles. I mentioned this at the first service, but on, during Sunday school today and for the next three Sundays, I'm teaching a special class for graduating high school seniors. And in case uh, you're a senior and you did not get that message and would like to come, we're going to meet in the conference room in the administration building just next to me. We had our first meeting today, and I'll do that for three additional Sundays. We come to John chapter, chapter 12. Hear God's word, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So ends the reading of God's holy word. As a Christian... I do not like to be stereotyped. I don't like it when someone says, oh, you're a Christian, you must therefore believe, and then they come up with some kind of real fringe-type belief, or they say, you must never do such and such because you're a Christian, and I think, no, you really don't understand. That's not what the Bible says, because we're not all exactly the same, and I think we must be very careful today not to stereotype unbelievers. There are many reasons for people not to believe. It's becoming all too common today to hear of children that are now in their teens, late teens, um, who have grown up in churches who now are declaring themselves to be atheists 
or at least to be agnostic in their framework. And I think it is very important not to see all unbelief as being the same. Now, this was pointed out last year in a very special project which was, came out of the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, which documented six types of unbelief or unbelievers in America. Really six types of uh, agnosticism and atheism. Here they are. I know you won't remember, but I'll just give you a description. The first type of the six is the intellectual atheist or agnostic. This person sees himself or herself as too advanced intellectually to believe in, the study used the word metaphysics, I'm going to use the word religion. They see themselves as too advanced and intellectual to believe in that. So they seek out other like-minded unbelievers and they read their blogs and they post their YouTube videos and so forth. That's the intellectual atheist. The second of the six is the activist. This is a person who proactively works for issues connected to naturalism or just strictly humanist causes. The third type of unbeliever is the seeker agnostic. This person would say that they are open to the possibility that things like Christianity may be true, but they are more comfortable with living with uncertainty. They're just comfortable not knowing, and that's where they remain. That's the seeker agnostic. Then there's a more aggressive person, and this is called the anti-theist. They believe religion to be evil, and so they feel it's their moral duty to actively work against any form of religion, and especially any kind of religious influence. Now, the fifth is called the non-theist. The non-theist, they just don't have much interest in religious concepts at all. There's just a disinterest. They're not, a, they're not aggressive against it. They just don't care. And the last one, and I think we're loaded with these in Macon, is called the ritual atheist, the ritual agnostic. They really don't have any religious convictions, but they regularly attend religious ceremonies since they think it meets some kind of social or psychological need. And so the intellectual atheist, the activist, the seeker agnostic, the anti-theist, the non-theist, and the ritual atheist... Now, I believe as a pastor and just as a follower of Christ today, since Christianity is no longer a dominant influence in our culture, we are finding ourselves, I find myself almost on a not, maybe not daily but weekly basis, interacting more and more with various types of unbelievers. And I think to be a faithful witness, we need to engage and we need to converse and, and have a framework and, and understand why have you chosen not to believe. And it can be for a variety of reasons. Uh, if we don't do that, then we fail to understand the true nature of belief and unbelief. And this passage is loaded with it in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. Often people assume that, well, you're a Christian, or you claim to be a Christian, you claim to believe in God, and you must have a great vested interest in that belief. And they mean that sarcastically, like you just believe that because it gives you hope pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by sort of thing. And they see this as a crutch, and a crutch which enables people like me to avoid the real issues of life. But really, the opposite is true. I think, and I believe the Bible teaches, that it is unbelievers that have a very great vested interest in their unbelief. And it could be anything. We must be careful not to generalize. 
It may be they just like having no moral restraint. I want to do what I want to do, and I'm not going to be held accountable for it. It may be that they have a pattern in their life they know will have to be dealt with if they submit to God. A pattern of unbelief, a pattern of unforgiveness, a pattern of hatred, a pattern of bitterness toward another person. And then they know if I follow that, then I've got to forgive that person and I've got a great vested interest in not forgiving them. That could be it. Unbelievers can choose not to face the difficult questions of pain and suffering and design and can just blow it off. Well, if there really is a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? See, you shouldn't believe in God. Well, that may be true. How do you explain it? These vested interests often override whatever evidence is put in front of it. And that's what we see here. We read of it here in John 11 and 12. Jesus has just performed the most powerful miracle of his ministry, and that is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And as we come to the end of chapter 11, if you'd like to look at verse 45 and following, after, after Lazarus comes out of the tomb, it says in verse 45 of John 11, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. It was in, there was the evidence, a dead man. He'd been dead for four days. And now he walks out of the tomb. And so they believed at that point. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, this now, here's the vested interest. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their interest in silencing Jesus was they did not want to lose their positions of authority that they had with the Romans. So was it lack of evidence? Is that why they didn't believe? Was it lack of proof? Was it because what Jesus did was not credible? No. They had a vested interest in keeping their lives peaceful from the Roman authorities, and that became their key motivation for their hatred of Jesus. They feared that Jesus' growing popularity might spark an uprising that the Roman government would be forced to crush and when they crushed it, it would result in these men losing what little authority that they had under Roman law. The Romans, in the nations they conquered, they allowed a certain level of home rule to the nations. And that meant the Pharisees and the Sadducees enjoyed certain positions of authority on the council and a very high position of prestige, but Jesus threatened all of that. R.C. Sproul, the theologian, once wrote an essay on modern persecution of the Christian church throughout the world. And in that essay, he asked, with so much persecution of Christians around the world, why has there been so little of it here in the United States? And according to his opinion is, part of the answer is that this country was founded by refugees from religious persecution. And they tried to do everything in their power to structure our culture and our laws to guarantee religious freedom. I'm not saying they were believers in many cases, but they, they, they valued religious freedom. But now there's been a shift. And there's a shift away from tolerating Christians and a growing hostility from the secular world to the Christian faith in particular. R.C. Sproul goes on to say another part of the story is that American Christians have become very artful in avoiding conflict. 
And unlike the Apostle Paul, who we read in the book of Acts, would boldly walk into these very pagan cities and proclaim that Jesus was Savior and Lord in the midst of the paganism, the people heard him loud and clear. Often he was beaten up. Sometimes he was left for bed. More times than once he was thrown into jail. But we have learned to avoid that kind of thing. In other words, we, like the leading Jews here in Mark 11 and 12, we have embraced expediency. It has been said that the church in the U.S. is like we've been placed on a reservation. And we'll, on the reservation, we are allowed to exist, we are allowed to practice our faith as long as we do it on the reservation. But we are forbidden from moving off the reservation into the public square. Now, I can promise you, and this probably many of us have experienced this, all it takes is being asked to pray at a public event and praying in Jesus' name, and you will know at that point you have left the reservation. We are simply not allowed to do that. And you know who howls the loudest when Christians wander off the reservation? Other Christians. Why? Because they are living peacefully on the reservation, and they would rather live peacefully on the reservation than disturb the world with good news. And Sproul says that's what happened in Jerusalem. Those to whom God had entrusted his word, the prophecies about the Messiah, the clear teaching about the Messiah, they had compromised again and again and again so as not to upset their Roman oppressors, and therefore possibly endanger their positions of prestige. So when Jesus attracts a following, these very same men gather, and rather than saying, you know, we really ought to wonder whether we ought to believe in this, whether it's true, whether it's right, whether it's according to the Scriptures, instead they gather, and here's what they say. If we leave this man alone, he will stir up trouble and make our lives difficult, and we will lose our positions of power. So let's see what happened now. When all this is brewing on the first, what we call Palm Sunday, in verses 12 to 19. It was the Passover season. That was the time of year when the population of a relatively small town of Jerusalem just busted at the seams. There are numbers given today from as many as a million people to 2.6 million people that would have gathered there. Others guesstimate that there were as many as 260,000 lambs would have been sacrificed during the, the Passover season there in Jerusalem. And so amidst this large crowd, when tensions are high anyway, especially with them and the Romans, this is when this takes place. Now, I mentioned that about Lazarus because that has to be taken into account. We typically read the story of Palm Sunday Jesus' triumphal entry, and we don't realize what fuels all this is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. And as a result of that miracle, many people are believing in him, and as word spreads into the city, they hear Jesus, they'd heard about Lazarus, and they're, they're filled with anticipation that Jesus will be coming now during the Passover season. Chapter 12, as we read, began with Mary using this very expensive oil and anointing Jesus for burial. That's what's happening there. And then in verse 9 of chapter 12, knowing Jesus will be there, the crowd begins to swell, the tension mounts. The death plot is not only they want to kill Jesus, who else do they want to kill? Lazarus, they want Lazarus dead too. 
As I asked the students this past Wednesday that I teach, why do you think they wanted to kill Lazarus? And one answered back, he was the evidence, right? He was the evidence. Jesus said about all of us, if they hated me, they will hate you also. If you're a follower of Christ, you are evidence of God's work. And Lazarus was evidence, and they wanted to destroy the evidence. So now Jesus comes into town. It's important to remember, unlike most of the stories in the Gospels, this one's told in all four Gospels. All four Gospel writers include this entr- his entrance into Jerusalem. And though they stress different things, John is the only one who mentions palm branches, as I'll explain in a moment. What we know from this is that we think they all included it because this breaks with everything Jesus has been doing throughout his public ministry. Through most of his public ministry, he is removing himself. He is trying to quell the multitudes. He says after he heals someone or does something spectacular, he says, don't tell anyone about this. He tries to keep it almost low-key and minimize the, the multitude effect. But now he's going to be front and center. It's all very intentional. And so he comes into town, unlike anything we had seen before. He's intentionally going public. Now, all this has to do with they were expecting a king. They expected Jesus to be their king. We modern Americans uh, know very little about what it would be like to live lives under the domination of kings. We read in history some kings are good, some kings were ruthless, some were cruel. Israel did not always have a king. And I'm not going to read 1 Samuel 8 to you, but just to remind you where this came from. After the time, the period of Judges, 400 years, back in the Old Testament, Gideon and and all the others, uh, Samson that had been judges, that had ruled over God's people, he had raised up. The people rebel against God, and they say, we want a king, we want a king like all these other nations that are around us. And so Samuel was the prophet, he was God's spokesman. And they say, we want a king, we want to be like all the other nations. And Samuel prays to God. And God says to Samuel, give them a king. But they've not rejected you, Samuel. They have rejected me. And so for the, a, a large portion of 1 Samuel 8, God warns them through Samuel what will happen when they take a king, when they have their own king. And they, they are looking for the same things you and I look for. Here's what they wanted. They wanted protection. They wanted provisions. And they wanted direction. They wanted a king to protect them in battle. They wanted a king to provide for them when they had needs. And they wanted a king to direct them, to tell them what they were supposed to do. Now, who is supposed to meet those needs in your life? God is. God says, look to me for provision. God says, look to me for protection. Look to me for direction. So they were expecting this from a human king. But God warns them in 1 Samuel 8 that they're going to regret it. They will live to regret the day they got a king. And here's why. He goes through a series of verses and he says, Well, first of all, he will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots, and they will run before his chariots. Two, he will take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields for vineyards and groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants. On and on and on, he will take a tenth of your flocks. There's a repeating phrase. He will take. I've never been to England. A number of you have. But I've had some of you tell me you've been to Hampton Court. Has anyone here been to Hampton Court? There were about six people. Anybody? Okay. 
Oh, y'all travel more than the first service crowd. There were about six or eight at the first service that had been there. If you've, you ought to go online and read about Hampton Court, uh, one of the most magnificent royal residences through the centuries. It was given to Henry VIII in the year 1525. When James I spent Christmas there in the year 1601, there were 1,300 guests, so the 1,200 bedrooms were not enough. They had to set up tents on the grounds. Now, when Henry VIII died, he had 60-plus houses. So you think you're something with your place at Lake Sinclair, right? 60. 60 houses, including this one. Now, when we look at royalty like that and all these possessions, you remember how they manufactured goods to get the money to do that? Remember how they ran businesses and generations saved money so that they could build these royal residences? Isn't that right? Didn't I read that in history? No. They never manufactured anything. How did they get the money? They took it. They took it. They took it from the subjects. They took it from the people. And that's what God is saying. You want a king to provide provision, protection, and direction, but the only way they're going, you have a king, is he gonna, he's going to take from you your sons, your daughters, your livestock, your land. That's how they're going to get it. Now, we think of that, but the truth is you and I serve kings today. Everybody serves somebody. And it's just a matter not of whether you're serving, but it's a matter of choosing the right one. And the ancient Israelites did not choose correctly. Oh, it's so easy to glamorize and fantasize. If I can just get away from God's will, how wonderful life will be. Proverbs itself says the way of transgressors is hard. Well, now Jesus comes into town. Verse 13, the people put out palm branches. What was significant about palm branches? It all has to do with some history that happened about 150 years before. From the close of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New, there's about 400 years. Now, during that time, you have the rising not only of the Greek Empire, but you have what's called the Seleucids. The Seleucids were after the Greek Empire. They primarily were Greek after Alexander the Great, before the Romans rose to such prominence. And so the Jews fell under the domination of the Seleucids. And during that time, there were two brothers. There was Simon Maccabeus, there was Jacob Maccabeus. And they each at different times rose up and defeated the Seleucids. In fact, the younger brother, later, he ran them completely out of Jerusalem, a military victory. And the people celebrated this victory of, of running out their oppressors out of Jerusalem. They had a huge parade, like a New York ticker tape parade. There was music, and there were palm branches. And the palm branches represented nationalism, Jewish nationalism and victory. All of that is in their mind now when Jesus comes in. They are expecting Jesus to be the king, to break the back of their Roman oppressors. The palm branches are in memory of what had been happened there with Maccabeus, and they are doing that to honor now what they think is going to be their military king. And then in John verse 12, verse 14, it says he got on a donkey. You ever wonder why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? I mean, it doesn't exactly strike us as the animal of choice. When have we named cars after donkeys? We have Mustangs, we have Broncos, but not a Ford donkey. If you wish to make a statement of authority and respect, how about something else? Well, there were two reasons why he chose a donkey. One, it fulfilled prophecy. 
The prophecy mentioned in John 12, verse 15, from Zechariah, 500 years before, Zechariah had prophesied the Messiah would come riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. But secondly, though we may not look at it this way, riding a donkey was a kingly act. That is what David, during King David's reign, he rode on a donkey. So Jesus is saying he's a king in the line of David. So he knew exactly what he was doing when he chose a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. It said who he was, it declared what he was like, that he was humble and that he was gentle, that he was a king, but he was not the kind of king they were looking for. He was a king of peace. Peace I leave with you, he said. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do you have peace? Do you have real peace? I don't mean that on a particular hour maybe out of your life when everything's going the way you want it to, but the kind of peace that recognizes that the Bible says all of us need to be made right with God for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of the God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It says in Romans, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus. So here he comes, the the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace. He's riding slowly. He's riding purposefully, and he comes into town. Mark 11 says that the people in front of him flung their robes to the ground as a gesture of reverence. They were indicating they are willing to have everything, including my cloak. Luke chapter 19 says that when he came near, that the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God in front and behind. And they're shouting this word, Hosanna, Hosanna. It was a customary word that would have been said at Passover. And it literally means save, save us. They would see one another at Passover and say those words, Hosanna. In Mark 11, verse 9, he says that those who were ahead and those who went behind shouted. So there was this antiphonal chant going on. The first group, Hosanna. The second group, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Jesus slowly makes his way down that narrow Jerusalem street, this shouting is going on in front and behind, back and forth. They are prophetically over and over repeating, save us, save us, save us. Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven whereby we may be saved. John gives some editorial comments back at verse 16. He's going to mention three things that are like his comments editorially. First, Even the disciples missed the message that Jesus was sending and would not fully understand until after his resurrection that he was not coming as an earthly king, a military king. Secondly, verse 17 says that the raising of Lazarus was being talked about all over town and by people who had been there and they had seen it and their reports are spreading and they are sparking interest. And that's why they turn out at this massive parade as Jesus enters Jerusalem. And then verse 19, as the Jewish authorities are watching this, I mean, they have already tried to seize him. They have warned him. They have argued with him. And now the Pharisees look at what they're doing, and they're seeing the crowd swell and that all their efforts have been useless. He's more influential and popular now, and it's growing by the hour. In fact, they look at each other and in disgust say, look, the entire world has gone after him. 
Our efforts haven't stopped anything. We know, and you've probably heard it said, and there's, I assume, some truth to it, that those who shouted Hosanna on, on Sunday shouted Crucify on Friday. We aren't sure, but it could very easily be the case because their expectations were not met. They wanted a military, political king, ruler who would break the backs of the Roman Empire. But that was not Jesus' plan. never was. And that is why they would very soon despise him because he did not meet their expectations. I don't remember who said it first, but I wrote it down. The only thing worse than disappointment with God is disappointment without God. I have been a pastor long enough to know that there are many heartbroken people in the church, in and out of the church. And I am privileged to be allowed into the confidences of a lot of people, and they say things to me that they probably don't say to others. And uh, that is a great stewardship, and I guard carefully. But it is not unusual to hear people say, when they really, really feel safe, how mad they are at God how disappointed they are at God, how they cannot believe in God. And usually if I say, when did this start, it goes back to broken, unmet expectations. I prayed for this, and God didn't do it. I prayed for my child to be a strong Christian, and my child now hates God. You know, grown children, they have nothing to do with him. My child, I prayed for my husband not to divorce me over and over and over. I claimed all these promises, and yet he did. I prayed for this, I prayed for that, or I prayed for children and God didn't give them to me. Why did he not meet my expectations? I prayed so much for this person I loved and the person died. And I uh, had the whole church praying for them and just on and on. And, and those are unmet expectations. I was listening last night by accident to Joel Osteen's wife. I forgot her name. Don't care to know. Don't even tell me afterwards. And she was preaching. They're out at the largest church in America, and I know some of y'all may really like her, but she was saying that, look, God is waiting just for you to believe in him, for him to bless you. And I say, where is that in the Bible? It's not there, but that is American Christianity right now, and you are setting people up to hate God because those expectations often are not going to be met. And then you're going to say, well, the reason they weren't met is you didn't have enough faith. So I had all the faith I knew to have. Well, it wasn't enough. Apparently God chose to curse you rather than to bless you. And so when we have unmet expectations, you're going to be the king, you're going to deliver us, they can quickly turn to hatred. Almost like that, when the person doesn't deliver. And Jesus doesn't deliver what they're looking for. And so we have them today, our Messiah of health and wealth. If I follow him, he'll make me healthy, he'll make me wealthy. My Messiah, he'll make me happy. In the Protestant church, we talk more about that. You know, this is the God wants me happy, doesn't he? He wants me happy. I had a man with Mission to the World say it's hard to come back to America. When I go to China, I meet men who would not deny Christ, and they've spent 20 years in prison and not able to see their families. He said, I come back here and I go to church, and men walk up to me and say, God wants me happy. Surely he wants me to leave my wife for this woman. She makes me happy. That's what God wants, isn't it? And it's like a disconnect. Ever had God not meet your expectations, fail to answer prayer, not be the king you had in mind? Maybe you wanted the wrong kind of king. As I read in a book just the other day, if you had known everything God knew about your situation when you prayed, you would have prayed for exactly what he gave you. <laughs> I can't repeat it, 
I don't know if I can remember it. If you had known everything about your situation that God knows about your situation, then you would ask for what he didn't give you, and you would have asked for exactly what he did give you because he knows everything. Well, Jesus is a different kind of king. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at what happened after this. But he's a king that comes riding on a donkey. Next time, the Bible tells us he's coming back and he's going to be on another animal. You know what it is? A white horse. It won't be a palm branch. He's going to have a sword. The Bible says he'll have a sword to make war and conquer all his enemies. And the Bible says you and I and everyone one day will bow the knee and we will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's not a matter of if, it's a question of when. When will this happen? Will it be in his presence or will it be apart from him? Or do you recognize him now as a humble, gentle king on a horse who has compassion? Our greatest need, my greatest need, your greatest need is to know God, to be saved, to know him, to have your sins forgiven by this king. Your greatest need is to know God as your heavenly father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you do rule uh, over all, and we see that. We pray, Father, for in our unbelief that we often deceive ourselves thinking it's uh, purely academic and often there are other agendas behind it, just like these Jewish leaders who were concerned about power and prestige and they could care less about truth. And we know that can happen to us as well. We ask that we would trust in Jesus and him only to be made right with you because of his work and not our own. We pray in his name. Amen.